Hi, welcome to the StoryWorth podcast. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Krista Baum, co-founder of StoryWorth. On this podcast, we feature true stories written by StoryWorth writers. If you're new to StoryWorth, we help people write their life stories, the big stories and the small ones. Once a week, we send our writers a question to help inspire their writing. They reply to the email with an answer or story that comes to mind. At the end of the year, we print what they've written into a beautiful keepsake book. Every story written using StoryWorth is private, but for this podcast, the writers volunteered to share their stories publicly with you. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. As I get older, I am so thankful for old friends. And so today we want to share a story about a lifelong friendship that the author is endlessly grateful for. Then we have the honor of talking to Barbara Traficanda about her very first best friend. Someone once told me that friendship is like having one mind in two bodies. I'd like to think that friends also share one heart. I am blessed with many dear friends who have come into my life to share in my happiness and sorrow. And I'm a better person for them. But my first friend will always be my best friend. Her name is Dolores Marie Hickey, and I met her when we were 11 years old. It was 1948, and my father was transferred from Kansas to Fort Totten on Long Island, New York. My parents enrolled me in Sacred Heart School in the nearby town of Bayside. It was my first day of school. The schools were so crowded that my twin sister had to go to another school in Flushing. So I was totally alone. Dolores Hickey sat in the front row of Sister Mary Claire's sixth grade classroom. Her bushy red hair parted in the middle and held at bay by two overloaded barrettes at her temples. With a freckled hand and ready smile, she welcomed me to her desk. Schools were crowded in 1948 because of the baby boom. That's why the two of us occupied a bench desk meant for one. I was the daughter of a career army medical officer and our family had traveled extensively all of my young life. Dolores was an only child who'd lived in the same house from the time she was born. Her father, Bill, was a salesman, and her mother, Helen, worked for the telephone company. My family lived on the army base. The Hickeys lived in town. My father fought them beneath us and tried to discourage the friendship, but disparate backgrounds and my father's misguided ego aside, I became a permanent fixture in the Hickey household. We baked cookies, devoured movie magazines, and watched Gorgeous George and the Goldbergs on their new television, when it worked. We dressed in matching baggy, rolled up blue jeans and sloppy shirt tails, applied fake beauty marks to each other's cheeks, bought our first bras, garter belts, and mesh stockings together, and sat for hours while Dolores' mom, Helen, gave us Tony home permanence. When I stayed over, we would snuggle in her parents' double bed with Cokes and popcorn and talk all night until one of us fell asleep. When we were a bit older, we'd spend hot summer evenings on the Hickey's front stoop, experimenting with cigarettes borrowed from our folks. At first they made us dizzy and sick to our stomachs, but soon we could inhale as suavely as Betty Davis and Lauren Bacall, or so we thought. I know Dolores came to our quarters on base several times. I have pictures of her there but no vivid memories of what we did. My father's behavior could be very erratic. I was probably worrying so much about what he might say or do that I blocked everything out. It was only later in our adult years that my sister and I discovered he suffered from bipolar disorder. The summer before eighth grade, 
my father received orders for a new assignment in Washington, D.C. He tried to reassure me that we were only moving four hours away. But I knew it might as well be 20. Dolores and I didn't see each other for two years. But we wrote almost every day and enjoyed occasional free phone calls arranged through her mother at the telephone company. Dolores attended Bayside High School. I was at Holy Cross Academy. I got braces on my teeth and went to a dermatologist. She got her period and shaved her legs. We both had boyfriends, brazenly elevated to Greek gods in our minds. She was crazy about the singer Frankie Lane, smoked lucky strikes, had a part-time job at the Stanley Theater, and missed me. I adored Perry Como, smoked cools with a rhinestone-studded cigarette holder, did a lot of babysitting, and missed her too. Finally, at 15, I was deemed old enough to take the train alone to New York for a long-awaited reunion. It was summer vacation and I was to stay a week. Dolores met me at the station and we fell into each other's arms, squealing and bouncing all over the platform. We were 11 all over again. We spent most of that week at the beach, lathered in baby oil, our hair saturated with lemon juice. At night, we drank lime rickies at the local soda shop and tapped the end of our cigarettes smartly on the side of our silver zippos before lighting up. We took long, drawn-out drags, which we inhaled into our lungs and then re-inhaled through our noses. While Nat King Cole crooned too young on the jukebox, I was reminded of our earlier attempts at smoking on Dolores' stoop just three short years before. I didn't see Dolores again until the summer following sophomore year in college, although we kept in close contact. While at business school, Dolores had become engaged to a marine engineer, and I was invited to be in her bridal party. It was set for July 13, 1957 in Bayside. I was home for the summer in the weeks leading up to the wedding, working as a secretary at the Department of Housing and Urban Development downtown. Thank God for Sister Clarence Marie who taught me typing in shorthand in high school because I never had trouble getting a summer job with the government. Ten days before Dolores' wedding, on the morning of July 3rd, I rode into work with my mother and father. My sister, who did not take typing or shorthand, was unemployed and home sleeping in. My dad dropped my mother off at the doctor's office where she worked. It was Wednesday, a half day, because the doctor spent the morning playing golf. So I joined her for coffee and a sweet roll before heading to my office a few blocks away. Mom completed the billing, left at noon to do some shopping, and took a cab home. At 14th and Military Roads, her cab was broadsided by a driver who ran a red light. My mother was killed instantly. The rest was pretty much a blur. My father had to identify her body at the morgue while my sister and I sent out hundreds of telegrams to a weeping telephone operator. There were extensive funeral arrangements to be made. No easy feat on a holiday weekend. Neighbors, who were truly strangers, came out of the woodwork with trays of food. We'd only lived in that particular house for a little over a year and barely maintained a waving relationship with anyone on the block. Family members lived in different towns and different states, so it was up to us to arrange lodging in anticipation of their hasty arrival. Somehow, the three of us did it, along with some close military friends of our parents. Then, it was over, and everyone was gone, and reality set in. There was a huge void in our lives and we would never be normal again. It was decided by my father and sister that I would honor my commitment to Dolores and take the train the following week to New York to serve in her wedding. The thinking was that mother would have wanted me to go. 
to be there for my best friend. On the night before her wedding, Dolores and I snuggled one last time in her parents' bed, not as sure of ourselves and our dreams as we had been, but eager to see what lay ahead. Dolores was a beautiful bride, and her family embraced me every moment of every hour that I was there, but not enough to fill the large and growing hole in my heart. That would take a lifetime. So I returned to college for my junior year, and Dolores and Bill started a family immediately. They bought a little house in Comic, New York. They sent a lot of baby pictures, and we talked on the phone occasionally. We had little in common at this stage in our lives. She was a young wife and mother, and I was a young college student with term papers and exams. While at St. Mary's, I met a boy, Jerry Traficonda, across the highway at the University of Notre Dame, who would one day become my husband. He graduated six months after we met, and we carried on a 14-month letter-writing courtship while I finished college. He moved to California for graduate school in photography. I graduated in 1959, went home to D.C. to help my twin sister with her wedding, then headed for California on August 3rd to join Jerry. We married in 1960 in a small church in Canoga Park, California, in the San Fernando Valley. My father was there, but my sister was nine months pregnant and not allowed to fly. We had a very modest reception in the Chatsworth Women's Club, then flew that very night on a red-eye to New York City for another reception the next day at the Statler Hotel. Although Dolores and Bill lived near the city, they were unable to attend. Too many babies, I think. By the time my sister and I had three children, my father decided he wanted his bi-coastal grandchildren to have the opportunity to know each other better. So every summer, he paid for me to fly my kids to Washington, D.C. for a couple of weeks. My first trip was in 1964, and while in D.C., I took a side trip to Comac to visit Dolores and her family for the day. Dolores' four children were close in age, and everyone had a grand time. We sat in her spacious backyard on white Adirondack chairs, talking nonstop while the children danced and whooped around us. We sipped cold lemonade, lit our filtered cigarettes, and celebrated our enduring friendship in a haze of blue smoke. Although we stayed in touch on a regular basis, I would not see Dolores and Bill again until 1985, 21 years. After Dolores' parents passed away, she and Bill moved to Florida. Bill was in the boat business, and Dolores took a position with a company that specialized in hypnosis as a means to control weight or stop smoking. She wrote that her husband wanted her to quit smoking, and that was how she'd become acquainted with her employer. She never mentioned if the hypnosis had been successful, but seemed very happy in her new job. The letter about her lung cancer followed in the early 80s. It had been caught early and was responding to treatment, she wrote. I embraced her optimism and readily believed what she believed, or wanted to believe. But I called her anyway. She sounded healthy and upbeat. Her husband was taking her on a Caribbean cruise and a new grandchild was due any minute. She chided me for worrying. I thought of the girl with the wild red hair who came to my rescue on my first day of school at Sacred Heart. She was still good at calming fears. Months passed before I heard from her again. It would be her last letter to me. The doctors had done all they could. She didn't know how much longer she had, but she was comfortable. And she wanted me to know that she drew great strength from the love and support of her friends and family. It was her last sentence that stuck with me. If you still smoke, please 
stop. The following spring, I called Bill to see if Dolores would be up to a visit in April, and he assured me she would. I prayed I wasn't waiting too long. It was a short drive from Miami Airport to Dolores and Bill's condo in Delray Beach. It was April 14th, 1985. Dolores answered the door, her hair shorter and redder than I remembered. As we hugged, I realized it was a wig. I held her frail body close, afraid for her to see my eyes. We clasped hands, fingers tightly entwined. As we walked into the living room, she pulled an oxygen tank along with her. It's just like walking a dog, she chuckled, noting my discomfort. The condo was beautifully appointed, but looked more like a furnished model than a home. Everything was painfully in place. Dolores was dressed in soft pastels and meticulously groomed. It was like being in a play, and we all had our parts. If we played them right, we'd get through the visit as if this was not really the last time I would ever see my best friend again. While her husband served wine, Dolores brought out several tattered photo albums. It was her intention that we stay in the past, so we returned to Bayside and happier, carefree days to Mr. and Mrs. Hickey on their front stoop looking younger than I remembered, and Dolores and I, shoulder to shoulder in ill-fitting confirmation robes, squinting into her dad's box camera. Pictures of vaguely familiar young men in rolled up blue jeans with dark carrying cigarette packs rolled in the sleeves of their t-shirts. Be happy go lucky, Dolores sang. Smoke lucky strikes. We laughed politely as Dolores turned away to inhale a long, slow breath from her oxygen tank. I knew it was time to go. With knowing eyes, we all hugged and kissed and promised another visit soon. Dolores and I clung to each other as long as we dared. Our eyes said, but words could not. Dolores Marie Hickey Rennie died on July 7, 1985, at the tender age of 48. The call came while I was washing my hair in the sink. With my head wrapped in a towel, I brought the receiver to a wet, soapy ear. It was Terry, Dolores' oldest daughter. She thought I'd want to know. It happened that morning. She'd gone peacefully with her family by her side. I put my head back under the faucet to cover my sobs, only to realize later I'd neglected to remove the towel. I'm 82 now. I think of Dolores often and the happy days we shared in her small town of Bayside, New York. She came into my life when I was most needy, and I will be forever grateful for her gift of friendship and her gift of life. I never had the opportunity to tell her I did what she asked, but somehow, I think she knows. I'm joined here today by the author of this story, Barbara, why don't you start by introducing yourself? My name is Barbara Traficanda, and I live in San Juan Capistrano in Southern California, Orange County. I'm a mother of six, grandmother of 22, great-grandmother of 12, and my husband and I live here in uh, San Juan, and we've been here five years. But you didn't grow up in Southern California, is that right? You were from a military family. 
Correct. So I grew up everywhere. I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey. I have a twin sister. That's my only sibling. And uh, I went to school in South Bend, Indiana, where I met my husband at the University of Notre Dame. I went across the street to St. Mary's before women were allowed at Notre Dame. I met him in 1956, and I followed him after graduation to California. He was from New York, and uh, we've never left. We settled in the San Fernando Valley for 40 years and then came to Orange County. And had you ever made a friend at any of the other bases you were at before? No, that was truly impossible to make a long-term friend with somebody in the military because everybody came and went and we moved almost every 11 months of our lives, including in New York when I met Dolores. And then when I moved again, I moved from uh, Long Island to Washington, D.C. So it was uh, it was doable. I, I could take the train and go visit her, which I did. Um, I loved how you described that reunion on the train platform uh, in your story. That trip sounded so fun. Do you remember what it was like meeting Dolores for the first time? Well, I do remember that the schools were terribly crowded after the war, so desks were put together. So we sat two to a desk, and she was she had been at that school for quite a few years. We were sixth grade, I believe. And so I was new, coming in at an awkward time, not even at the beginning of the term. And she just took me under her wing. She was very comfortable. She very outgoing, very Irish. Uh, and I took to her immediately. So Dolores, of course, was the savior to me. Okay, so the Irish explains that brilliant red hair she had. Red hair, freckles. <laughs> yeah, I'm very uh, fair. You know, she didn't do well in the sun. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Dolores's family. Why did you love being over there so much? Oh gosh, they were they were sweet, sweet people. She was the mom was a telephone operator, so she worked in the city, and the dad was just a homegrown salesman, you know, door to door kind of fella. But always stopped at the pub on his way home. <laughs> They had a lot of Irish family around them. They lived across the street from Bayside High School. They had lived there forever. I mean, and I didn't know people who lived in a house more than a year, you know. Uh, so that was something to me. And a lot of family were always coming over. She had a lovely cousin, a couple of cousins and aunties and you name it. She was an only child. She could do anything. Jump on the couch, uh, get up in the middle of the night and make popcorn. I mean, those were things that never happened to me. I really liked it. And I had trouble with my father because he was uh, a military man, a professional man. Everything had to be by the book. This family was not at all like that. Mrs. Hickey would come and she'd make us breakfast in the morning. And as my sister reminded me last week, she made pancakes that were nice and thin, almost like crepes. And my sister wondered if that was because they didn't have a whole lot of money. I have no idea. I just ate them and enjoyed myself. <laughs> What a difference in mood from your house, as you described it. You said your dad had bipolar and you didn't bring people over. How did that affect you as a kid? Well, we really, I, I did not bring people to my house when my father was there because you never knew what he was going to do. When we lived in Washington, we had a rec room in the basement of the house, which entered out the backyard. And when the kids would come over. When he came home and put the key in the door, they went out the back, the place emptied. <laughs> so that's just how it was. He was very strict and I didn't open my door to a lot of people. I went there. We did not know what was the matter with our father, just that we knew that we couldn't rely on his behavior. Do you think your dad's mental health had an impact on why he discouraged your relationship with Dolores or do you know why he did that? 
They were just low-class civilians in his eyes. And yet, that's what he came from. He had absolutely no money. Grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. And for medical school, the University of uh, Nebraska, he took a year off and did vaudeville. He had a band. He was a drummer, and he organized it. He took a year off from school to make enough money for him to complete his medical education. And then he went into the CCC and ended up in the Army Air Corps because there was no jobs. He had no money. So he grew up the way he looked down at people, but he just was kind of a snob. And, and my mother came from the dirt of the earth anyway. She, she did, they didn't have any money. My grandmother no, never owned a house in her life, and uh, they didn't like him. <laughs> you can't imagine why. <laughs> they just thought he, he lived beyond his means, had great expectations of himself, and he did well. He was a full colonel for most of the time he was in the Air Force. Oh. Flight surgeon, you know, and we lived in Europe. He had a very good job there. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Given your home life was complicated, how did it affect the way you parented your children? Did you make any specific choices about how you would do things differently or the same? I gave my children a very happy life. I don't think they ever saw my husband and I have a fight. In fact, they thought that was odd. And they said, that's not right. We both grew up with all the fighting we needed. So we just never did. It wasn't something we displayed. Yeah. Their kids, their friends all came to our house and wanted to spend time with us. I love that. I think that speaks really highly of your parenting skills. And I think it's not easy to kind of break cycles. So it sounds like you were a really wonderful mother. How did your relationship with Dolores change over time? We shared memories. Uh, our children didn't grow up together. We didn't learn to get married and parent together. But, you know, something started. It doesn't necessarily have to end just because you're not there all the time we were able to pick up where we left off. I only saw her maybe four times after we were married. She always lived on the East Coast, and I always lived on the West Coast. Then I would visit my aunt in New Jersey and my husband's family in uh, Queens, New York. And then I would go out to the island to visit her. You know, if I had the opportunity, but with six children in tow and not much money... It wasn't easy to do those things in the, in the day. Yeah, well, traveling with kids is still hard. So I don't know how much things have changed. Uh, <laughs> now that you're in your 80s and looking back, how do you see friendship? I'm grateful for all my friends and I have very close friends. I keep up, I stay in touch and I lose a lot of friends on a daily basis. I write a column for my college and uh, three times a year. And I now, for the one that goes out December 1, I have seven obituaries. I always have at least four. I follow up on them. I find that if you call the family, they're happy to talk to you. And I like to write about my friends because the ones that are living don't have enough going on in their lives to tell me what they're doing. <laughs> I did musical theater at Notre Dame. And I was when you, when you are on stage with people and you're night after night rehearsing, you get to know people. You really get to know them. And we stayed in touch forever. We went back and did more performances back at Notre Dame in our, in our 70s. We recreated our things. And three of them have died this, this last couple months. And I, I, I'm just, I'm sad. But I have those memories. and They're nice, as I had with Dolores. I remember how good she was for me. I don't know that I added to her life. <laughs> but I, I thought I did. I thought I did. And, and you... When you're experiencing first things when you're a teenager, you remember those things. And I remember our days at the beach. 
putting lemon on our hair <laughs> and peroxide in our hair to be blonde and zinc all over our lips and playing Al Martino. And oh God, <laughs> I can smell it. I can smell the Long Island sound when I think about those days. And we were having all our first loves, you know, we were starting out and I was happy to share those with Dolores. Yeah. It's so interesting how people come into your life and how friendships change over time as our lives change. I have a friend that uh, lives in Atlanta and uh, we went to college together. We went to high school together, but we weren't close in high school. She was a year ahead of me, but we ended up at the same college and became roommates. And she's a widow. She has seven children, but we're very much in, in touch with each other. And the other day I called her for her birthday, October 19th. And she didn't, she didn't answer. And I told her, hey, old lady, how are you? And then I called four days later and still no answer. So I called the nursing home, not the nursing home, but the retirement home where she is. And of course, the lady said, I can't tell you anything. There are uh, HIPAA rules. I said, uh, just answer me yes or no. Have you seen Mrs. Babs walking in the halls? She said, yes. I said, is she standing up and smiling and talking and breathing? And she said, yes. I said, thank you. Oh. <laughs> so then she went and talked to Mrs. Babs, who called me right away. She's barking in her twang. I don't know why or I was, but I think I have my phone turned off. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, so here's my last question. Since it's Thanksgiving, what are you most thankful to Dolores for? Her openness. She didn't have a care in the world, and she had lots of fun ideas. I, I think she loosened me up a bit. Mm -hmm. I think I needed that at, at, at 12, 13, 11, 12, 13. You know, where you, well, I just, it was ideal. I mean, we sit up all night and talk and, and, and do all things that I didn't dare do at home. So I wouldn't have had that opportunity. I, I wouldn't have. I had freedom. I got to ex experience freedom and uh, an easy life, which is how it should have been, I think. And and I I lost that fear with Dolores. I lost that fear. So yes, she had a great deal to give to me at the formative years when I needed it. I, I brought that to my children. They all grew into beautiful, beautiful children and people. And they like each other. And there's nobody estranged. And that I call that my success story. I love this answer. That's a really special friendship. And I'm grateful to you for sharing it with all of us. Thank you so much, Barbara. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. I hope you're enjoying a delicious Thanksgiving feast with lots of pie and sharing stories with the ones you love. If you want to keep the conversation going and print these stories in a hardcover book, head over to storyworth.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a holiday episode. And in the meantime, if you want one of your stories to be considered for the podcast, head to storyworth.com slash podcast. StoryWorth is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Krista Baum. Our producer is Aaron Lan, and we get production help from Wendy Sabroso. Thanks, Wendy. Our mix engineer is Zach Hurst, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>